we knew that there was a tornado about a mile north of us, and then the big one came and it hit us. But I actually think the bigger story is going to be the recovery. I really do. The way our team immediately pulled together. Hello and welcome to another edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast, Advancing the Equipment Manufacturing Industry. I'm Dusty Weiss, AEM's professional nerd, Midwest enthusiast, and podcast host. And in this episode, Vermeer Corporation, famous for its iconic ag equipment and its dedication to its employees, now finds itself in recovery mode after a catastrophic tornado hit factories in Iowa. Former President Mary Andringa joins us to talk about how a carefully cultivated workforce is now picking up the pieces from that storm, the importance of having diversity of thought on your team, and her journey as one of the first women to assert herself as a leader in the equipment industry. We're also joined by special guest co-host, AEM VP of Marketing and Communications, Nicole Hallida, and AEM's Kate Foxwood joins me with a new initiative to help members solve their own recruiting challenges. So, riveting stories and critical insights on this edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast, where each month we explore a new subject area to help keep your business on the cutting edge of the equipment manufacturing industry. If you haven't yet, subscribe to our feed so you're updated every time we put out a new edition. And for the day-to-day news in the industry, also make sure you check out our twice-weekly e-newsletter, The Industry Advisor. Some recent advisor headlines include Hubertus Mulehauser, the new CEO at CNH Industrial, backlash over the failure to make progress on a federal infrastructure plan, and what manufacturers need to know about telematics in the big data era. Check out aem.org news for more on these and other stories. So on now with this incredible story about Vermeer and the tornado. Vermeer, by the way, is the site of our next Thinking Forward event on September 18th. And when we first planned all this, we saw an opportunity to celebrate a longtime figure in the ag equipment industry. Vermeer Corporation builds tractors, directional boring equipment, trenchers, forestry tools, many other products. It has a sterling reputation for its workplace culture, which allows this hometown company from Pella, Iowa, to compete with manufacturers on a global scale. And the product of this culture is a top-notch workforce that goes above and beyond the call of duty. But we didn't know then that the metal of that workforce would be tested like this. On July 19th, an F3 tornado slammed into Vermeer's production facilities in the middle of a busy Thursday afternoon. The damage was incredible. At least two production plants and a waste management facility were destroyed. Other parts of the facility suffered damage as well. Too often, I think, the word miraculous gets tossed around to describe situations like this, where there were no serious injuries. In point of fact, our next guest will tell you that the reason no one was seriously hurt was because this top-notch workforce sprang into action and saved the day. Mary Andringa is the former president and CEO of Vermeer Corporation and still serves as board chair. She continues to play a critical role in forging Vermeer's workplace culture, and she is a pioneering leader in the manufacturing industry. Mary Andringa, thank you for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Delighted to be with you. First of all, Please let me convey to you from all of us at AEM and in the industry how relieved we are to hear that no one was seriously hurt when that tornado hit the Vermeer Mile in Pella. I know there's still a lot that you guys are in the process of figuring out, but how is everyone doing out there? Well, thanks for asking. It's been an interesting and challenging last two and a half weeks, but 
I think everyone is doing fantastically well. The spirit that we have around this uh, recovery effort has been phenomenal. Safety is so important to Vermeer in everything we do, and so knowing that people on site um, were safe was a first priority, and we had customers and dealers with us, and so that was added a, a little interesting twist to the whole event. But since the tornado, we've had tremendous outreach from local communities, from the state, from the nation, and certainly from many, many AEM members, for which we are very grateful and very humbled. This week, we have over 90% of our team is back, um, most in their regular jobs, but some in temporary positions just to help with continued cleanup, with checking of jigs and parts and whole goods. I mean, the the amount of work is pretty outstanding, but we've got a team that's really pulled together and has been organized in the whole process. And uh, consequently, the day after the tornado, we had pretty much people working through the night that night, but the day after we were able to start shipping parts, our parts distribution center itself was not hit. However, some of the plants that produce the parts that go into the parts distribution, the manufactured parts, they had been hit. So, you know, this was no small task. And uh, we were shipping whole goods out on the next Monday, and we have continued to ramp up shipping over the last two weeks. That's incredible to hear. And like a lot of people, I think, in the immediate aftermath of the storm, I was glued to the media coverage. And you saw it on social media with a hashtag Vermeer Strong. And I think this is really just an incredible example of a workforce that's picking Vermeer up off the ground and putting the pieces back together. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great story. And the team's just been incredible, whether it be cleanup, you know, the extra hours people have been working, continually working with our customers and our dealers and our suppliers. So it's it's been an all-out effort, and I think it really has typified Vermeer Strong. Where were you when the storm hit, and, and what did you experience in that? And I was in the Global Pavilion, and interestingly enough, we were offering some extra seminars for our customers who would come from all over the world. I mean, it was our 70th anniversary customer event, and we were in the third session towards the end of it, and my phone weather alarm went off, and it buzzed pretty loudly, and then the whole system started buzzing. And I said, okay, this is I think it's the real thing. We need to get everyone down to the first floor and in a shelter. So our classroom and other classrooms that we're meeting all went down uh, to the first floor of our pavilion and went into, we've got two sets of restrooms which serve as tornado shelters. Many of us went into the kitchen area, the catering kitchen, which is also a tornado shelter. And we were in there quite a while. And, you know, we're making the best of it. One, one of my team members had picked up some of the the Dutch pastries that were out had been out in the hallway. He brought him in. He was starting to serve pastries to people. We had coffee in there. And um, people, a lot of people were asking me, so what, so exactly what is a tornado? I mean, again, we had folks from all over the country and all over the world. And is it like a hurricane? Well, no, it's not really like a hurricane. I mean, and here I was saying, you know, uh, my dad actually built these buildings separately so that it would be kind of a community of team members working together. But also, I remember him saying, you know, we don't have all of our machine shop or all of our welding in one plant. So if we ever got hit by a tornado, literally, he said this, um, we would be able to have an area to duplicate what we would need to do to be able to get back faster. Well, never expected us to really be hit. 
and we knew that there was a tornado about a mile north of us, and then we thought we were maybe all clear, and we were told, no, we've got to stay in the shelter because there might be something more coming, and then the big one came, and it, and it hit us. And when it hit, um, the electricity went out, and literally we felt a pool through the doors, out into the hallway and later on found out that the major big doors into our arena, and I was quite a ways from the arena actually, had both been blown in or out and we were on the edge of it, but it literally, it had a pooling force. It was scary. And then coming out and, you know, with no electricity, going out and there was glass in the parking lot of the pavilion where I was. I could see cars piled up on top of each other in the parking lots nearby. Could not see the two plants that were most affected yet at that point. But the fear was, you know, have we had loss of life? Well, and what a relief, again, to find out after the fact that because of the preparations that you've taken as a company, nobody was seriously hurt through the course of all this. All due credit to your company and your workforce for really saving the day there. And what an incredible chapter to add to the Vermeer story as well. Yeah, it really is. I mean, 70 years, this has been the most dramatic thing that's ever happened to us. Um, But I actually think the bigger story is going to be the recovery. I really do. The way our team immediately pulled together. Uh, You know, we've been on the continuous improvement journey for 20 years. And what's actually been happening in the last two and a half weeks, and several of us who are very tuned into continuous improvement have said this, it is like one big company-wide Kaizen event. It's very intense. You know, we break into small teams. We have work to do. We find out if there are barriers. We come back. We try to break down those barriers. And everybody pulling together, all adding value. So um, a lot of our continuous improvement work of the past 20 years, I think, is helping us in this recovery stage. For instance, with our lean work uh, before, we had things in batches and nothing was on wheels. Now everything's on wheels. All the, the carts of the parts that go you know, directly to an assembly line, all the jigs and fixtures are on wheels. Everything's labeled. Workplace organization is a big part of our, of our journey. And so just a lot of the things that we've done in our lean journey have helped us be able to literally pick up a line and move it to a different plant quickly. I mean, definitely, we were prepared in a a lot of ways to be able to turn this recovery into a story. That's a very positive one. Well, and it's going to be something that I think that our members can learn from as well when they come to visit your campus in September. And that's sort of where I want to turn our focus now to a broader discussion about Vermeer's workplace culture and your role in shaping it particularly. And in doing so, I want to acknowledge that rising through the ranks to become an executive at a company like Vermeer is an impressive feat in its own right. But as one of the first women to assert herself as a strong leader in this industry, Mary Andringa, you likely face challenges that I might not fully comprehend. And so I think there's some value in bringing another voice into this discussion, one whose experience and expertise might parallel your own in some ways. Nicole Hallida is AEM's Vice President of Marketing and Communications. She's been working in the industry for more than 20 years and has a deep understanding of what it means to be one of the first. Nicole, thank you for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Thank you, Dusty. Hi, Mary. How are you doing? Hi. Very good, Nicole. Nice to hear your voice. Nice to hear yours, too. I'm very impressed by what you're saying regarding the recap and how everyone pulled together. You obviously know a lot about building a fantastic team. We're going to talk a little bit about that in terms of workforce development. 
Vermeer competes on a global scale with companies in Chicago, New York, Beijing, but you're headquartered out of a tiny town in Pella, Iowa, population 10,352. Can you tell me a little bit about how you've turned that to your advantage? First of all, I'm, I'm biased, but I think the Midwest is a great place to have a business, and I think Iowa is a great state. Iowa was recognized um, a few months ago by U.S. News & World Report as number one, the number one state, and high rankings in infrastructure, healthcare, and education. So, yes, we have different things to offer than a Chicago or a New York, but we have, we think, some pretty special things to offer, quality of life, great education, community, and really good transportation as well, and more and more recreational opportunities for folks. So for families, it's it's actually not as hard as people might think to attract um, a great workforce because we do have... Uh, quality of life and education and clean air and water, uh, which are, are important for, for families. For millennials, uh, maybe a little bit harder. And so we work really hard at that on working with our local community as far as recreational events, social events. And we do have an office in Ames. It's part of the Iowa State University Research Campus. We've been there now for about four or five years. And that's also a great place to rec- recruit not only college co-ops and interns, but full-time people. And we, you know, feel that that's kind of a nice balance because sometimes there might be someone who we really want to be on our team, but they don't feel Pella's going to be a fit for them, but Ames might be, or Des Moines, and they can, you know, commute quite easily. So we keep trying to work at that so that we can attract the, the best people. That's really forward thinking of you, the university campus and Ames and, you know, being agreeable to Uh, what people are looking for in their personal lives. In fact, I have the social media feed to back up what I'm going to say, and that's time and time again, I'll see a story about Vermeer, whether it's something we've done or something you've done that you've put out there, I'll repost it and say best in class time and time again when it comes to workforce development. Having previously worked in workforce development at AEM and with us getting back into it now, I'm always pointed to boots on the ground in your local area, work with the people that you have um, who want to work with you to try and make that happen. And I know that you guys do science, technology, engineering, and math as young as preschool in your community. How do you think these efforts are helping to build tomorrow's workforce for you? Great question. And this is one of my favorite topics, the talent pipeline. And I believe it starts at preschool and it goes through the folks who are part of what we call Friends of Vermeer, our retirement age folks who continually also help with training and mentoring and filling in as, as need be. But starting with preschool, it's been four years now since we built a early learning center right across from our campus. It is run by Bright Horizons. We think that's a best practice to have a third party running things like early learning center, also running our pharmacy and our medical clinic, which are all on our campus. And it, the curriculum for, for Bright Horizons is fantastic. This is not a daycare. This is an early learning center. The kids start coming at age six to 12 weeks, and they can continue to 12 years after school and during the summer programs. The curriculum has a lot of science, um, engineering, technology, and math, and it starts really young. You know, when they're when the kids are served family style, they count out how many beans they have on their plate as soon as they can start talking almost. And they also have a great uh, curriculum for art, for music, for physical movement. But I think it's great to start kids early. And one of my favorite things is during engineering week in February, we always have engineers 
teachers that volunteer to go to go into the schools too, but also to go over to Yellow Iron Academy. That's the name of our early learning center, and they do projects with the kids, and the kids get so excited about inventing. I mean, there's no more creativity than in a preschool, right? And uh, they get so excited about the things that they can invent, and they do projects with these engineers. I think it's a great start because it's very much equal, girls, boys, no matter what, everybody can have great fun doing projects. And then we continue with just a, a lot of different things, um, K through 12 and beyond, as we really invest in the talent pipeline. Because if your career isn't amazing enough, you're leaving a lasting legacy in your community with youth. That's amazing. Can you tell me maybe for a company that wants to get started in something like this? I know we're facing members coming to us and saying, you know, help us along. What can we do? How, where do we get started? Um, you guys are really established in this area, but for maybe a small to mid that is feeling overwhelmed, do you have any advice on just yeah, where to start? Sure. Getting to know your local schools, just a simple thing that really can be done quite easily is getting with one of your local high schools and offering that you're willing willing to have a shadowing program at at your place of work. So we've been doing this with one of the high schools for probably a good dozen years, where we'll have about 12 students, um, and the, the school, high school, does work, you know, with business industry on this, and they have... They let all their kids decide on a shadowing program for about a week and a half. And so we have a number of students who come, and they shadow engineering, they shadow finance, they shadow manufacturing, HR. We've had shadows over at Yellow Iron Academy. And um, they, they really get to see what is involved in today's manufacturing, which you know, many of them have a really outdated view or perspective of what manufacturing is about today. And so I loved it when one of the students who shadowed one of our computer programmers for a week and worked with him, he said, wow, it was just amazing at what what this computer programmer did. And he said, and I actually found a real-life application for algebra. (laughs) You know, it's that kind of thing. I, you know, just you got to give these kids real work-based learning opportunities so that they understand, even if it's a day or even if it's something that uh, a business would offer in the summer, you know, uh, would be one way to start. Another thing which um, the National Association of Manufacturers and the Department of Commerce have been very big at promoting uh, over the last multiple years is Manufacturing Day. And um, you can do anything from invite a classroom to come and experience what manufacturing is about or to work on some uh, projects, activities to understand manufacturing. So not only do we have the weld simulator and the paint simulator and horizontal directional drilling simulator, but things like a currency table where we've got lots of different kinds of currencies and the kids have to try to figure out what, what currency is worth more. Is a, a Chilean peso or a British pound worth more? And just understanding that that's also part of manufacturing today. So, again, I think it's really overcoming this sort of old-fashioned understanding of manufacturing. Another thing we do, which is also, I think, thing uh, other companies should pick up on, is we invite teachers in in the summer. We are able to work at that they can get educational credit for that through one of 
the local uh, private institutions. And then through our foundation, we do pay them a stipend to come in. But I, I'm not sure you'd have to do that. I think you could invite teachers in to understand your business, and they make a huge difference in how they then talk to their students about manufacturing opportunities. I love that. And especially when you said uh, sixth grade, I remember doing our research, we found that by age 11, kids didn't know what they wanted to do. They had ruled out what they didn't want to do. And so I think your message of, you know, don't discount how young you have to start having those conversations is is really a good one. So I want to kind of ask you about the family business and, and the dynamic of that. I know your family owned and were founded in the 40s by your dad, Gary Vermeer, your brother, Bob, headed the company. Then you took over as president in 2003 and you handed the reins to your son, Jason, in 2015. Uh, what's really admirable to me is the line of family succession is not a given at Vermeer. Can you tell me about the Vermeer succession rules and why they are important? Sure. My brother Bob and I actually, nearly 30 years ago, realized that uh, family businesses can be difficult. You know, they're not easy. uh, And that a lot of uh, family businesses do not transition well between second and third generation. Actually, a lot of them don't transition that well between first and second. You know, the stats are 30% get to a second generation, 11 to 12% get to a third, and only about 4% get to a fourth. So we decided we wanted to see if we couldn't break the mold and do a better job. And so we worked with this consultant and they, the kids really all had input into a family employment policy. And the policy states very clearly that we want to have summer jobs for shareholders to understand what are the opportunities in a manufacturing entity. But anybody who'd want to come full-time, there was no entitlement that you had to prove yourself and that we, we felt it was important and these young people felt it was important that uh, everyone at least have a college degree and preferably a graduate degree, that they would have worked somewhere else for two to five years and be promoted during that time and then apply to either the CEO or the chair to ask about open positions. And it was also sort of in our employment policy that there needed to be a real position, not just something made up for that person. Once they were in the company, they would then be followed by our independent directors on the HR committee of our board. I think it's worked. I mean, we've, we've you know... Well, clearly, look at is, Jason, right? I mean, yeah, he's... <laughs> right. Jason followed the rules. He was the first one to, to come in, got, you know, a, a mechanical engineering in undergrad and then an aero-astro master's at MIT, and then went to work for JPL in California for four years. And while he was there, he also got his MBA from USC and had phenomenal opportunities at JPL. He was a systems engineer. Um, also project engineer. I mean, he uh, since he had also had a co-op at Johnson um, Space Center in Houston, he was the person that had worked on manned and unmanned missions to Mars and uh, so went to Washington, D.C. several times to represent NASA for that. So, yeah, he came with an incredible background. But our daughter, Mindy, also is in the business, and she had great manufacturing background in, in Michigan, injection molding company, and then also worked for two years as a mid-market treasury uh, officer in a bank. And she has been in also various roles, but now is the manager of our channel advancement for Forage. So working with our distribution for the forage dealers. So we're all 
already starting to prepare for the fourth generation. And this summer we had three fourth generation young men. They're the, the oldest ones of the, of the group who all worked in various uh, internship opportunities. And so it's been fun to see um, the fourth generation and kind of where their passions are evolving as well. And hopefully mm-hmm. some of them will come back full time and the others will be greatly engaged shareholders. I hope they do come back. You certainly spend a lot of effort on um, evolving these people. Um, and, and you mentioned Global Center. You know, right now, AEM is having a dialogue about diversity of thought and how we can achieve greater creativity and innovation by making a conscious inclusion effort. You know, much of our volunteer leadership is a reflection of the industry. I imagine Vermeer has a similar challenge being geographically far away from the traditional hubs of diversity and innovation. What steps have you taken to foster diversity of thought at Vermeer? And, you know, that that is a, a very important topic today, very important topic. And I think there's always room for uh, more diversity and for improvement. But we are pretty intentional about that. For instance, we have something called V-Lead, which is Vermeer Leadership, and it's really for high potentials in our in our company. And there's an application process, and not everybody gets into it. It's very, very highly sought after. But this year, of the 20 um, team members who are part of our V-Lead, and they spend like four intense weeks together, really understanding their own leadership um, qualifications and their strengths and how can they build on those strengths. We have a half, half the group are women and we have representatives from around the world as well, from China and from um, our EMEA office. And we, we usually always have somebody from uh, Latin America, from Asia and from Europe. And that is great because that just helps build the awareness, I think, for everybody who's in that group. We also sponsor something at Iowa State University. It's uh, called a uh, Vermeer ISU Global Leadership class, and uh, we sponsor it for one year, and they take a trip to our office in Europe, in EMEA, during their spring break, usually, and uh, that also is about half women, and with diversity of several students who are from not from the United States, and several who are not from Iowa. And something I've tried to continually reiterate to our engineers and to our marketing and to our IT people and to our HR people is to really connect with their cohorts in our regional offices, whether it be Brazil or uh, Europe or we've our Asian um, regional offices in Singapore, and then we've got a manufacturing plant and distribution in China. And we've got very good video conferencing with all of those entities. But I continually say one of the most effective ways for us to be thinking innovatively is to tap into our team members who live in different geographic areas and to understand their point of view on things. And together, we'll come up with better solutions. You touched on women when we talked about a little bit of that diversity. And so I think we're going to wade into the Me Too movement a little bit in terms of what we've been hearing about in the news um, and how sexism can still be a problem in at least the entertainment industry or the tech industry. As one of the first women to assert herself as a leader in heavy equipment, what would you say is the state of sexism in our industry today? I think it's getting better. I mean, I think we're getting more respectful, but... I'm sure there are still pockets that need um, improvement as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure that maybe sometimes I don't experience what some other women do, but we make it very clear at Vermeer that, you know, any kind of harassment or 
discrimination of any sort, we want brought to whether it's our hotline or our HR partners or to HR or to anybody in leadership because we're just not going to condone that at all, at all. You know, we talk a lot about our four Ps and the center P is principles and for us principles which are biblically based. But the big thing it's the golden rule. I mean it's it's we want to treat people like we want to be treated and that doesn't matter what the diversity is, whether it's gender or ethnic, what whatever diversity it is, we want to have a respectful workplace and be very respectful of the talents and the great contribution everybody brings to the team. I think the good thing about the industry having personally been in it for over 20 years is I haven't found it to be overtly difficult as a woman. Um, My experiences have have evolved positively. I mean, there's certainly been things we could all share that aren't obvious to our male colleagues, but how, how has your experience shifted over time? Maybe stories you've heard or perceptions that people have shared. How do you think it's changed? Well, about 30 years ago when I was president, so that was in 89, I had, uh, there's a customer that called and talked to my assistant, and he wanted to talk to the president. It was about, I think, an equipment problem. And my assistant said, well, she isn't available right now, but she can get back to you. And he said, what? The president is a woman? <laughs> and and, uh, and my assistant said, yes, and, you know, gave, gave my name, et cetera. And he hung up. And, but to be honest with you, I think that's the only time I've had a real, like, snub. You know, and I've, I've had some great opportunities. I was the first woman to chair the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, I think, in 90 years. We've had women since then chair, but, but I was the first one. And I remember one of the other board members who was meaning well. He was meaning, he was meaning to be positive, but it wasn't necessarily the most positive. He said, oh, you know, I really like you because you think like a man. Mm. And I, you know, I just took that and I thought, oh, that's okay. I mean, he's, you know, he's trying to be positive in his own way. And, and I tend also not to get ruffled by those kinds of things. But I would say it has been fun for me, like at trade shows and things, to see, uh, you know, more women getting involved, particularly maybe in their family businesses, and not only just in, quote, accounting and kind of the, you know, the inside work, but also get involved in running directional drills and uh, involved in operations. And so I think all of those things are going to help us as we go forward, but there's still a ways to go. And I think we need to be diligent and continue to be respectful and also realize that if there are areas where we're not seeing that respect to make some countermeasure changes pretty quick. I agree. I know personally, I've just learned or at least felt the value of making an effort to build up my female colleagues um, or my direct reports who are women, mentoring them to try and kind of send the elevator back down. I think I heard that phrase one time and I, I think that's important. Can you share just as an industry trailblazer? I mean, what are some techniques that you use to make it easier for the women who will come after you? For sure, I try to encourage them in their careers. We have a, a neat group at Vermeer called Women in Manufacturing. They do a lot of phenomenal work. They they actually man a lot of the STEM booths and activities that we do sometimes in the local communities. But they also do lunch and learns, and it's open to men and to women. And their sponsor is the president of our industrial segment, Doug Hunt. So, you know, it's definitely a collaborative effort, but it's really a, a group that encourages each other in, in their career. How do you handle talking to to men about this or getting them to be part of the women topic within the industry? I, I've been to a, a number of industry sessions where a gentleman was talking about, he's, you know, I just have to be honest, I, 
I feel like I got to be careful here. You know, I don't want to offend anyone. And yet you knew he was a really well-intentioned gentleman on this topic. What do you tell your male colleagues about how they can support women in this industry? Yeah, I think encouraging them to be respectful in the way that they interact with everybody on the team, including the women that are on the team and you know, giving feedback. I do, I know what you're saying though. I think men in some ways almost are withdrawing a little bit mm-hmm. in some cases because they don't want to be seen as doing anything inappropriate. So, you know, I think always asking, is this appropriate for this setting and how, how do I want to be viewed is, is important. And, and again, I would encourage them to do things like Doug, who's our sponsor of Women in Manufacturing, is sponsoring some of the things that really show your commitment to diversity in all levels of the team in, in, in the workforce. I think that's a great idea. Well, Mary, that's all the questions I have for you today. This has been extremely informative. I think anyone who listens to this will have a complete playbook on the topics we talked about. I mean, especially workforce development, which again, you guys are best in class. I really appreciate your time and it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. And we look forward to, uh, to having you in Pella in, in a month. And we're looking forward to that. And this has been instructive for me as well. Mary Andringa is the former president and CEO of Vermeer and currently chairs its board of directors. She was interviewed today by Nicole Hallida, AEM's vice president of communications and marketing. Mary, thank you for sharing your expertise from the industry. And thank you both for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. And once again, you can see firsthand how Vermeer is recovering from that tornado, learn about workforce development from an AEM panel of experts, and hear about the culture of creativity from Matthew Lunn, former writer and animator for Pixar and The Simpsons, two of my all-time favorites. All that at AEM's next Thinking Ford event on September 18th at the Vermeer campus in Pella, Iowa. There are also still two other of those events this year, October 16th in Indiana and November 6th in North Carolina. They're a great chance to learn something and network with other professionals from the industry. Visit aem.org think to learn more and sign up. Of course, Vermeer's workforce is a product of several generations of careful management. But with the economy humming and workers in short supply, even they will admit that recruiting good talent is a little bit harder than it used to be. After all, the unemployment rate is lower than it's been in a generation, baby boomers are retiring at an unprecedented rate, and the younger generation of workers has less technical training than in the past. So, in response to concerns from our members, AEM has been working to launch a toolkit program that will help equipment manufacturers augment their workforce development plans and take advantage of all the resources that are available to them. This effort has been spearheaded by Kate Foxwood from our D.C. office, and she joins us now. Kate? Thanks for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Thanks, Dusty. It's great to be here. So I started to set the stage a little bit, but what's the background of this project and how did it come about? So AEM members approach the workforce development issue from several angles. They're facing shortfalls on the manufacturing shop floor with positions that range from mid-level management to painters. Of course, welders remain in high demand. We hear that time and time again. Um, And then you turn to their dealer and distributor networks. You're talking about a severe shortage among service technicians who are responsible for servicing and repairing equipment for the end user. And that's another huge concern in terms of workforce for our manufacturers. So knowing this, um, we've assembled a workforce development task force that is a cross-sector group of AEM member representatives who set about identifying what role made sense for equipment manufacturers to play in closing the skills gap. There are a ton of initiatives 
and organizations doing great work, depending on what industry you're talking about. In our case, it's manufacturing, but there's others involved in construction, others involved in healthcare, name an industry. Essentially, there's a skills gap going on there. So we wanted to contribute, not be duplicative, and ensure that the programs and things that we were pushing for made an impact on equipment manufacturers overall. I like to think that as far as problems go, having a problem of too many people who are employed is a pretty good problem to have, but it certainly puts the squeeze on our membership. How does this toolkit then help our members deal with these problems that they're having? So I'm going to throw some numbers out for you. Exciting. The manufacturing sector alone is going to need to fill 3.5 million positions over the next decade. Now, this doesn't just include equipment manufacturers, but it's the manufacturing industry overall. Of that 3.5, as many as 2 million are just going to go unfulfilled because we just don't have the workers that are skilled enough to fill those jobs. That's startling. It's shocking. Based on this, we always make the case that equipment manufacturers need to be involved in the solution to fill this gap. In the construction industry, which is a critical industry for AEM members, it's facing a 1.5 million craft worker shortage. The agriculture and utility industries are all telling the same story when it comes to the skills gap. So the toolkit is meant to be a first step. As you can imagine, this is not a simple issue to fix all at once, but the task force has approached it with that in mind. And the objective was to develop tools for members and dealers to leverage in local individualized approaches to filling a K through 12 pipeline. So just to get young people engaged and in the door so that then they can fight over them after they're trained is basically the objective. (laughs) Take a piece of the broader skills gap problem and focus locally on how our members could solve this problem in their own communities. So the toolkit takes the user step-by-step in developing a strategy that's the right fit for them, considers the resources that they have available, and gives them several tactical options to deploy, such as how to host a facility tour for their middle school, how to initiate a non-industry partnership with a group like the Chamber of Commerce. So these are the things that are going to be you know, implemented in the toolkit, and I hope our members will find useful. And I think that's one of those things, too, where, you know, when you're just trying to fill positions, when you're just trying to get a product out the door, you don't necessarily have the time to set aside to go about developing those broader programs. And so I think that's why it's so critical to be able to plug in this toolkit that AEM is developing on behalf of our members. One of the things that you mentioned is the uh, Chamber of Commerce aspect of that. And as I understand it, there are a lot of state and local resources that are often available to employers. They just might not be aware of them. How can our members take advantage of these programs and avoid leaving money or opportunities on the table? For equipment manufacturers, it can be just as simple as reaching out to your state or local workforce development boards. These are entities that are established to serve as a liaison between employers um, and the Department of Labor. So basically the local to the DC connection. So these workforce development boards provide critical resources at the local level. They are they understand what's going on on the ground more than a bureaucrat would in, in the Department of Labor office in Washington, DC. One of the other ways that AEM members can take advantage of some of the resources that are offered for workforce development efforts is, is by participating in one of the webinars that AEM is sponsoring on these very topics and how members can avail themselves of resources, how to establish third-party partnerships. Um, and those will begin the month of August and continue throughout the year. We'll focus on veterans hiring. We'll focus on, again, third-party partnerships. And then we're even going to jump into the very important topic of how to establish an apprenticeship program in your company. Those all sound like really interesting topics. If I want to know more or if I want to sign up to participate, where do I go to do that? Go to the Thinking Forward website. And that would be aem.org slash think. 
The area of workforce is also one where AEM has been focusing a lot of its advocacy efforts in D.C. Uh, you've had a chance to be on the front lines of that. What are some of the areas where these efforts have made a difference already? So we've stepped up our advocacy efforts on behalf of workforce development this year. Uh, primarily, we have joined a business-led industry coalition called the Jobs and Careers Coalition that just focuses solely on workforce development across the board for the construction and manufacturing industries. The other um, big update that I have as I was walking in to join you on this podcast was that the House passed the Carl D. Perkins Career and Technical Education Act. They've reauthorized it. It hasn't been reauthorized since 2006. And this is a critical driver for career and technical education, otherwise known as CTE, um, that provides just a lot of the pipeline development for, you know, students in at all levels of grade school as they potentially enter into a career with the equipment manufacturing industry, with the construction industry, with IT, you name it. Um, And these are, again, these are the industries that are facing a severe skills gap. So big victory. Major progress being made there on behalf of the industry to sort of increase that flow of younger workers who can then come out and fill some of these 3.5 million positions that are going to be open. But one reason that we often hear cited as to why it's difficult for our members to recruit young workers is the misperceptions that seem to stick to manufacturing, construction, and agriculture. What is AEM doing to make this sort of work more attractive to young people and to sort of defy those stereotypes? In the short term, AEM will be exhibiting and participating at the National FFA Convention which is 60,000 young people attending every year in Indianapolis. Very cool. Yes. I grew up in FFA country, so, so that hits close to home so for me. Many, so many of AEM staff and so many of AEM members themselves are members. Some have even advanced into the leadership level. Um, I've learned a lot about the corduroy jacket <laughs> over the past couple of weeks. So we're really excited to be there. A number of our of AEM members exhibit themselves. And so our objective at being na- at National FFA is to expose attendees, guidance counselors, teachers as well as FAA members themselves, you know, about what a career in equipment manufacturing could look like for them. Well, excellent. It's all very good, important work being done on behalf of the manufacturers that make up the membership of AEM. And uh, we thank you for doing it. We know you guys work real hard in the DC office. Uh, Once again, to reiterate, if you want to sign up for the series of webinars uh, that's being put on on these topics, or to learn more about the toolkit that's available, make sure that you visit AEM's Thinking Forward website. That's aem.org slash think. Kate Foxwood, AEM's Director of Infrastructure Policy, Government, and Public Affairs, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Thanks, Dusty. And that is going to wrap up this omnibus edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. If you enjoyed yourself or learned something today, make sure you don't miss an episode. Open up your podcasting app and subscribe to our updates. Leave a comment or a rating, maybe. If you've got something to say to me direct, shoot me an email podcast at aem.org. Need another way to stay on top of industry trends? Follow AEM on LinkedIn. Just search up the Association of Equipment Manufacturers to see the news and events that are relevant to you and your business. The AEM Thinking Forward podcast is brought to you by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Little Glassman does the music. And for AEM, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.